Amen. Kids, you're dismissed. Thanks so much, worship team. Love singing those truths together. Hearing the voices raised up together, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Love it. Also love having the banjo back. That's exciting. So uh, I think it was on the disabled list for a long time, but now it's uh, had a full recovery. And uh, so we're excited that that, uh, to have that back as part of our worship service. Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're back in 1 Peter this morning. We're in uh, chapter 4. We left off at the end of chapter 11 before our Easter series, so we're picking back up, at, or verse 11, now we're picking back up in verse 12, uh, going through the end of the chapter. So uh, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible and want one, raise your hand, and somebody will get one into your hands. We have some back there. So if you don't have a Bible and you want one, just raise your hand high. You don't have to be embarrassed about it at all. Uh, if you do have one, uh, please turn with me uh, to 1 Peter chapter 4. In verses 12 to 19. Super thankful to Mark Sluka, who's down here holding down the front row. Uh, thanks so much to him for preaching last week in our absence. Was just really uh, encouraged by it. Um, the, the way that you shared from God's word from Psalm 1. I'm told that your first service sermon and your second service sermon were almost completely different, which I'm just like not even close to that level in my preaching, so I'm just blown away. Um, but what, what I saw in, from the second service sermon uh, was just such an encouragement to me, the way you weave your testimony in to Psalm 1. I know that we were all encouraged as well. So thank you for your faithfulness in bringing the word last week. Mark and uh, Jerry, Craig, and I were blessed last week to be able to attend uh, the D6 conference in Orlando, and we're just super grateful. First of all, we're just really grateful that the church uh, sets aside budget for us to be able to do that every year, to be able to go to a conference. It's just really important for us to be able to, first of all, just get away and to just be refreshed, to hear teaching that we're not necessarily thinking about, like, teaching, like, how I'm going to preach this, but just to be able to soak it up, to, to, to experience that. So that's super important for just the refreshment of a pastor's soul. So we're really grateful to the church for allowing us to do things like that each year. And we're really excited about what we learned as well. Uh, and um, as we think about this next season that we're moving into as a church. Now, I almost don't want to say this out loud. I don't want to come to regret these words. However, it feels like, come with me on this one, that we are finally moving into a season as a church, really in some ways for the first time since I've been here, where we're kind of moving out of crisis mode, so to speak. Certainly this last year uh, has felt that way. And uh, I, we don't know what the next season is going to bring, as evidenced by the fact that I said this exact same thing a year ago, the Sunday before we got shut down because of COVID. So we don't know what's going to happen, but it feels like, Lord willing, we're kind of moving into a new season as a church. And so uh, first of all, let me just say, we've said this before, but I want to continue to uh, encourage you, if you're at home watching on the live stream, to just, um, and if you haven't re-engaged yet with the church, I, I would really encourage you to talk, sit down with your family and talk about, okay, what's the date going to be? What, what's the milestone? What are we waiting for? Whether it's, you know, getting your second vaccine shot and waiting for that to kick in, or whether it's when the numbers get down to this point, I don't know, whatever, you have to figure that out for yourselves, but man, there's just, it's, it's not the same. And that's one of the lessons that we've learned over the past year is gathering virtually is just, it doesn't even, it's not even close. It's not even the same as coming in person. So we really want to encourage you to talk about it, to be intentional about it. Don't just kind of let it slide by, but be intentional about thinking about what is that date going to be when we're going to fully re-engage 
with the body. And we're really thinking about, as pastors and staff and deacons, we're we're starting to enter into a season where we're going to take some time to seek the Lord and ask Him, what does He want this next phase to look like? And one of the main things I've learned really since I've been here, I thought I, the Lord does this where you think you know something and then you realize you didn't know that at all. Like, I thought I understand how dependent I needed to be on God's plan, on God's will, on allowing Him to, to move and work as He wants to. But holy cow, if the last two years have not just been a lesson of, like, Mike, you think your hands are open? Open them more. Open them more. Open them more, right? We've all learned that lesson, I think. And um, that's the posture that we want to have as we move into this next season. Okay, Lord, whatever this next season looks like for us as a church, we got to have you leading it. we got to have you directing it. it. He's got to be the one in charge. And so um, that's the, I just want you to know that's kind of where, where we're at as staff. And uh, we're going to start having these conversations as deacons as well. But that's where we're at. And the next two Sundays are going to be really cool. Um, so next Sunday is Baptism Sunday, obviously, we're having one service. And then the week after that, we're going to do kind of a uh, state of the union kind of thing, state of the church, so to speak, where uh, each of the pastors, and maybe some more people I haven't decided yet, but each of the pastors at least, are going to share a little bit about what, the, and they're kind of learning this now, we haven't quite t- talked about this, but we're going to share a little bit about um, just what they've learned over this past year and what they're excited about for what's to come. We don't, again, we don't know what exactly the answers are, but, but we want to just kind of talk intentionally about, hey, where are we at as a church like right now? I think that's healthy to do every once in a while, certainly healthy to do as we move out of the season that we just had. So that's going to be in two weeks, and that's going to be a really, really neat service. And that might be one to target coming to in person if you've been uh, still uh, um, participating online. But no matter what this next season looks like, you know, maybe the building isn't going to be standing next week, and maybe that's the lesson I'm going to learn. I don't know. I don't think so. I, but uh, no matter what this next season, look, the trustees are looking at me like, Mike, what are you saying? <laughs> no matter what this next season looks like, God is good, and God is faithful. Man, if we all can't just I mean, come out of this last season just with that testimony, that story on our lips... God is faithful. He is faithful. And you know what? We might be entering into another season of suffering on the horizon. I don't know. But whatever it is, it is better to be in God's will than it is to be outside of God's will. We want to be in God's will no matter where that is. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. As we re-engage with the book of 1 Peter now, as we kind of enter into the home stretch with 1 Peter, we, Peter readdresses this idea of suffering. What does it mean to suffer as a Christian? And we're going to see a few ways that God uses suffering in our lives in this passage. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. Look at your Bibles with me. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, um, God, you're just so faithful to us. You are so faithful. And we are not faithful to you the way that you are to us. We go astray all the time. That's why you call us sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd, and we praise you for our shepherd, that he doesn't let any of his sheep run away. Good shepherd knows his sheep by name. God, so we praise you for your faithfulness. God, we thank you for the way that you've carried us through this season as a church, and we're just excited about where you have us next, Lord. We can't wait to see it. Can't wait to be a part of it, no matter what it is. We want to be in your will, God. So I pray that as we look at your word this morning and talk about the ways that you use suffering in our lives, we just pray that you would encourage us. If there's anyone who's walking through really a difficult season of suffering right now, even, Lord, use this word, use your word to encourage their hearts, Lord. Thank you for the way that you do that, for the way that the Spirit works in our lives, in our hearts, through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that you would guard my tongue as I preach. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Acts tells the story of the early church tells the story of what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven. In fact, that's how the book of Acts begins, with the story of Christ's ascensions. We know, we just celebrated over Easter, that Jesus came to earth and he accomplished what he came to do. He was born of a virgin, born in flesh, lived a sinless life, died suffered and died and rose again, conquered death once and for all so that all who believe will have eternal life with him. This is the gospel. This is the good news. There is no greater news, and it's all because of what Jesus accomplished on for us. And so the book of Acts begins with Jesus having accomplished those things, and now he's about to ascend into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father, and his work doesn't end there because he's now interceding on our behalf, waiting for his time to come to return. But Jesus, that's where we're at, the very beginning of Acts. Like, Jesus is still on earth, and he's just about to ascend into heaven. And before he does, he gives his disciples a mission. They're a little bit hesitant about the fact that Jesus isn't going to be with them anymore, as you can understand how you would be as well. The fact that Jesus was going to leave, they weren't happy about that, but Jesus told them, it's actually better for you because the Holy Spirit's going to come, and that's better even than my own presence being with you. So he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and here's what you're going to do. You're going to be my witnesses now in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yeah, that's right. You'll be my witnesses, Jesus says. And those places function kind of like the table of contents for the book of Acts. So the Holy Spirit first comes to uh, to Jerusalem at Pentecost. 
The Spirit comes to Jerusalem, and Christians are there, and then the gospel goes out to Judea and Samaria, and it starts to go out beyond there. And then what's really strange about Acts is it just kind of abruptly ends. Like if you're reading through the book of Acts just kind of in big chunks as a story, you probably think, what in the world? It just, it just stopped. What happened there? And what that's telling us as readers is that the mission isn't complete. Yet The gospel has not yet gone out to the ends of the earth, and now it's our job to continue in that mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. But what's fascinating to me about the book of Acts is that the disciples wouldn't have carried out the mission that God gave them. They wouldn't have accomplished what God told them to do if it wasn't for persecution and suffering. You see, ministry was like, hopping in Jerusalem. Like if you were there at that point, you would have been like, this is the place to be. The Holy Spirit has like moving and thousands of people are becoming believers. Like the Holy Spirit, when it came at Pentecost, tongues of fire were resting on people. Like God was doing incredible things and people were being healed. The church was being the church in every sense of the word. They Remember, they had all things in common. They were ministering to one another. Nobody had any need among them. And people were coming to the Lord. Like, if, if that was all that was happening, you would have been like, I need to be in Jerusalem because that's where God is accomplishing his plan. But guess what? God's plan was bigger than Jerusalem. And the way that he moved the gospel out wasn't through them just being inspired by what was God was doing, so, so they decided to go on their own. The way that God moved the gospel out was through persecution, it was through suffering. Now look, don't just take my word for it. Look with me. I'm just going to be on your screen. In Acts chapter 8, this is what's happening. Stephen has just been stoned to death, has been martyred for his faith because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. So Stephen has been stoned now. And then look what happened next. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the, scattered throughout the reasons, regions of where? Judea and Samaria. That's interesting. Except the apostles, it says. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a believer, like, right here, right now, and somebody's coming, breaking into your house, and dragging you to prison because you're following Jesus? We can't imagine that. So what was their response to this kind of persecution? Look there with me, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about complaining about the loss of their freedom of religion. Is that what it says? No, it does not say that. It does not say that they went about complaining about the loss of their freedom of religion. Church, ouch, a little bit, right? Can we have the tendency to do that sometimes? What did the church do in response to the persecution that was happening? Persecution that was literally dragging them out of their homes. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. How cool is that? How convicting is that? 
Would that be your response? You're seeing your loved ones dragged off to jail, so you got to run. You got to get out of here. You got to go somewhere else. So, what are you going to do? Continue preaching the word, the very word that's getting your loved ones thrown into jail. That's amazing. We need to learn from this. Because I think maybe, probably, we see evidence of it that it's true that our culture, like here and now, is getting more and more hostile to Christians. But I still think, and you can disagree with me on this, but in my personal opinion, I still think we're a far way away from anyone breaking into our house and dragging us to jail because we're following Jesus. Like, we're not close to that. But here's the thing. Even if you do disagree with me on that, if you do say, yeah, I think that's coming sooner then you think, even if that happens in our lifetimes, guess what? Who cares? In some way, now I said that first service, and uh, Christopher Salisbury raised his hand and said, I care. I don't think he'd mind me saying that. And I get that. Like, for, for sure, we don't want that to happen. But in some sense, any sort of persecution is not going to change a thing about what we're called to do here And now, it's not going to change our mission. If that happens, if that kind of persecution actually comes to us here, like it is in other places in the world right now, if that comes to us here, all that means is that that's how God's deciding to spread the gospel. That's the plan that God has. Because look what happened after they scattered, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. So these people who are just crowds in Samaria who wouldn't be hearing this if it were not for the persecution in Jerusalem. The crowds paid attention to what he was saying when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Verse 8, so there was much joy... In that city, there was much joy in that city. Church, I don't want to get on my soapbox about this too much, but it just bothers me. I think there's too many Christians having their joy in the Lord robbed of them because they're listening to messages of doom and gloom about the persecution that might be coming down the road. Meanwhile, in God's word, when the persecution did come, that persecution brought joy to the city. So church, let us not be robbed of the joy that we have in Christ. I just see too many people falling into that trap, and I understand the temptation. And if I'm listening to the wrong messages, I can get there in my mind as well. we got to be done with all of that stuff. If the persecution comes, then it comes. And God's plan is to use that. It doesn't mean that God's out of, not in control anymore. God is in control. We cannot have our joy robbed of us because we're fearful of what might be happening down the road. And this is going to lead to this is going to lead to this. Maybe it will. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. God uses suffering. That's what we're going to see in our passage This morning, God uses suffering in ways that we just can't even imagine. 
So no matter what happens, we need to have that same mindset that the early church had. They were being persecuted, and they went about out of their homes, and they kept preaching the good news. Why? Because no matter what consequences came, the good news was so worth it. So worth it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so worth it. God uses suffering. And just like we've seen when it happened with the early church, God uses suffering first and foremost for our joy. He uses suffering for our joy. Look at verse 12, 1 Peter 4. It says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised when the trial comes. Don't act like something strange is happening. I can be guilty of that. Anyone be guilty of that? Like suffering comes, like what's going on, Lord? What's the matter? Why is this happening? Where are you? Why are you doing this to me, God? I can be surprised. Be like, this isn't right. This is strange to say the least. This is wrong. Like if I'm suffering, it means something's wrong. Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Remember that, that, talking about that fiery trial, you remember in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we looked at a long time ago, talked about the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes, though it's refined by fire. Those trials are what refine our faith. That's what he means by the fiery trial, the things that happen that refine us in our faith. And this can be any number of of things. It's not, it, it can be persecution, but it's not only persecution. There's any number of trials that the, might, the Lord might use to refine us in our faith. So it's the kinds of trials that make you feel like an exile in your own home, in your own land, like you don't belong. Kinds of trials maybe where you're persecuted or ostracized or berated for your faith. But he's also talking about the kind of trials like the pain that you feel maybe watching a loved one waste away before your eyes. And some of you have experienced that in this room even recently. You know that like deeply and personally right now. He's talking about kinds of trials like the darkest moments in your life maybe where you're just like fending off these attacks of the enemy. Like it just feels so personal and it just puts you in a dark place. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe nobody knows that that's you. These are the kinds of trials that come and he says don't be surprised when that happens as though something strange were happening. Rather, verse 13, rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When we suffer, we're called to rejoice. What does that mean? Well, when you get that uh, phone call, maybe when you get the worst news possible, I don't imagine that you're responding with like a Tiger Woods fist pump, right? Like you just won, sunk a putt to win the Masters. You're not throwing a party to celebrate. What is rejoicing in trial? What does joy in trial look like? Well, it's about having the proper perspective because we're able to rejoice in trial only when we understand how we're blessed by God. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We need to understand this. And we need to be encouraged by this. 
Because it's these times of suffering when we can be the most tempted to think that God's presence has left us. It's those times when you're walking through pain and trial that you can be the most tempted to think that he doesn't even care what you're going through. It's those times when you feel, can feel most like he's abandoned you. And yet from the text, it's clear that it's the exact opposite. The trials that God ordains that we walk through bring his spirit on us like a magnet. You can't get away. God smiles on you. He gives you his approval as you walk through these trials. When you suffer, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God uses suffering for our joy. It's, it's beyond words. We can't explain it. But I'm sure that I would think every single person in this room... As you look back at a season of suffering, can you not say that as difficult as that was, as hard as that was, I felt the Lord's presence more near and dear to me in that time of suffering than I do in times of prosperity. Can you say that? Yeah. That's how God works. And we shouldn't be surprised because his word tells us if you're insulted for the name of Christ, and that can cover any sort of trial. If you are suffering, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that's something that, again, thinking about these last two years, like I can say that personally. I've experienced that in my own life. And some of the just like really dark, really difficult days where you just don't want to get out of bed because you don't want to face what's coming to you that day. Like I can look back and say just somehow God was with me. I know he's always with me, but somehow he was with me with me. You know what I mean? He was there. He was, his spirit like brought me this inexplicable joy in a way that I wouldn't know if I had not walked through those seasons of trial. Sometimes God uses suffering for our joy. And praise the Lord that he does. Second, sometimes God uses our suffering for his glory. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So verse 15, he's continuing this line of thought. We've seen this earlier in the letter. What he's talking about is sometimes, it's not like you can say every single suffering that you go through is like, <clears throat> excuse me, this same kind of suffering that, that we're talking about. Because sometimes it's just your own darn fault because of your sin, right? Like sometimes our sin leads to suffering and we can't say that, well, God is walking me through this trial right now when it's just your sin that's causing you to suffer. And so this list, it kind of makes me laugh. Like think about it. This list, he says, don't suffer as a murderer. That's really bad. Or as a thief. That's bad. Or as an evildoer. That's bad. Or as a meddler. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's not good either. I wouldn't put that on the same level as murderer, like somebody who takes a human life or somebody who's just kind of maybe up in somebody's business where they don't have any business being. Like, yeah, those two things are, are bad, but uh, what I think Peter's doing here is he's saying that kind of covering the whole gamut of sin, like whether you are sinning for, like you're a murderer and you're suffering the consequences of that, 
or you're suffering as a meddler and you're suffering the consequences for that. Like, as Christians, like, don't let your sin be the reason that you're suffering. He's just exhorting them, encouraging them. Like, hey, your sin causes suffering, so don't be that person who's, like, stuck in suffering because of their sin. But he says instead, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, which means not ashamed of Christ, but let him glorify God in that name. And I think what it means here is in that name of a Christian. So back then, that term Christian was actually, it was an insult. It was used by opponents of Christianity, and they called people Christians, which meant literally like little Christ, like, oh, you're just a bunch of little Christ running around. And so they used that as an insult, kind of like, I think, didn't the British uh, actually come up with the term Yankee, and then Americans kind of adopted that as a source of pride, but it was a pride, but it was originally an insult. I think that's right, maybe not. I'm getting a lot of blank faces right now. Can I get a... All right, anyways, moving on. Um, it's the same kind of thing, if that is indeed true. Like, they, they were, the, the term Christian was lobbed at it as an insult. So he's saying, if you're insulted because of Christ, don't be ashamed. Don't abandon your faith. If you're being mocked because you're following Jesus, you need to glorify God as a Christian, as a little Christ. Now, some of you are continuing to go through this kind of experience, whether it's in your workplace or somewhere else. In fact, after we preached through uh, this topic several weeks ago, I had a couple people say to me, like, that's exactly what I'm going through at work right now. Like, I am being mocked every single day for following Jesus. And so he's saying, if that's you, don't be ashamed, but give glory to God. If you're experiencing persecution, rather than denying Christ, <clears throat> live in the kind of way that gives God the glory. Water bottle's down there. I forgot to bring it up here. Thank you, sweetie. Awkward sip. And there we go. It's easy to give God the glory when things are going well, right? Farmers, it's easy to give God the glory when you have record yields. Like, praise the Lord. He, he deserves all the glory. And that, there's, that's great. It's great to give God the glory when things are going well. It's, it's easy to give God the glory when you win the championship and you're in the post-game interview and say, hey, we won, and to God be the glory for that. And again, that's, that's a great thing to do, to give God the glory when things are going well. But it glorifies him in a whole nother way when you are suffering for your faith and you're continuing to give him the glory. So go, let's go back to the early church. Because the early church, again, they, are just, they just really did a good job at this. They, uh, the way that they lived their lives as just a full pursuit of the Lord and full pursuit of what he wanted them to do. So look in Acts chapter 5. It should be on your screen here, uh, starting in verse 40. It says this, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, like physically beat them, and told them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they were told, they were brought in and beaten physically for preaching the gospel, something I've never experienced in my life as a regular preacher of the gospel, and then they were told, you will not preach the gospel anymore. Again, something I've never been told as a preacher of the gospel. So what do they do? Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, the people who had just beaten them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor 
for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I love that. They were beaten and they were told, don't preach anymore. And their response wasn't to cower in fear. It wasn't to hold back. It was to rejoice that God even allowed them to suffer for him. And then they continued preaching. They did not cease. And sometimes in our suffering, we have an opportunity to glorify God in a way that we wouldn't have if we were not walking through that suffering. Maybe some of you have that story as well. There's something that you've gone through or you have conversations with people and you had a platform because of the suffering that you were going through to glorify God, to say, you know what? I don't know why I'm walking through this, but to God be the glory. Like, that's a powerful story. That's a powerful testimony. And maybe you're walking through suffering right now. Again, you have an opportunity even in the midst of it, to say, how am I going to use this to glorify God, to rejoice in my heart, as difficult as it is, to rejoice that God has called me worthy to suffer and to glorify Him in that name. Like, that's what we're called to do. Sometimes God uses suffering for His glory, and because of the suffering we walk through, we have an opportunity to glorify Him in a way that we wouldn't if we were not walking through that suffering. Third, there's the two ways God uses the suffering. Suffering Here's the third that we see in this passage. Sometimes God uses suffering for our purification, for our purification. Verse 17, a little bit confusing. We'll talk about it. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is, like I said, a little confusing. We don't have a ton of time to get into it. But the judgment that he's talking about here that comes to the household of God. So he's talking about a judgment that comes to the church. So what kind of judgment is that? He's not talking about like the final judgment. like a damning kind of judgment. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of judgment, more like testing, a judgment that purifies and strengthens and allows people to grow. So what he's saying is sometimes God uses the things that we walk through to purify us for our purification. And that can hurt a little bit sometimes, can it not? But God uses suffering for our purification. Now, yesterday, when I uh, uh, morning we woke up and Owen came down. He always comes down right at seven o'clock, and he came in the room and uh, found out he had a splinter in his hand. And uh, I'm just going to be real gut level honest with you in a way that's going to take me down a notch in all of your minds. So I was Emily was up in in the living room with Owen. I was still asleep, and I kind of heard what was going on. And I, this is bad. And I thought to myself, well, maybe Emily can get that splinter out, and uh, I'm just going to kind of keep going to sleep. And so um, she. Uh, uh, I heard about two minutes later, I heard my name called. I was like, yeah, I should have I gone out there a, a little bit ago, but here we go. So, and it ended up taking uh, the services of three. It took Emily and me and Paw Patrol all working in conjunction with one another in order to get this splinter out of his hand. And so I had the squeezers, and Emily's holding them down, and we're also saying, hey, watch your show, watch your show. And uh, he wasn't happy. He'd never had a splinter before, but we had to get it out or it'd get infected, right? And that infection 
would spread. And so what you got to do is it's like kind of, it was one of those that's like under the skin. It's not poking out at all. So you got to like break through the top layers of skin. And you like pinch it out to see if you've broken through enough. And no, it's not enough. So you got to get a little deeper. And obviously um, nobody was happy about what was going on. But eventually we got through enough skin and, and pitched it out and, and we were good to go. He needed to suffer a little bit so that we could get that splinter out so it wouldn't get infected and cause more problems. You can see where I'm going with this, right? The same is true with God. There's times when God calls us to go through seasons of, I'm going to mix my metaphors here a little bit, seasons of pruning, right? Seasons of digging those wounds out of our flesh, so that they don't spread. There's times of seasons of loss, seasons of like painful ripping away of fleshly idols. And just like Owen with the splinter, like he'd never had a splinter before. It just looked like something weird in his hand, but he didn't want us to touch it. So what's the big deal? What's wrong with having a splinter there? We say the same about our sins sometimes, don't we? It's not that bad. It's not causing any problems for anyone right now. It's no big deal. But God, as a loving Father, doesn't allow us to stay in that place. And so there are times when his pruning of us can be painful a little bit. Some of you have walked through those seasons. I think all of us actually have walked through those seasons where the pruning of rooting out of those things in our hearts and our lives, like it hurts, but is it not so much better, church, than allowing it to fester and grow before it's too late? Sometimes God uses our suffering for our purification. It is so much better to experience that suffering now. Here's the line of thought that Peter has. He says it's better for us now to experiencing that, experience that, even though it's painful. Like it's painful now. But if this hurts, rooting out these sins in our hearts and our lives, if this hurts when it's done by a loving Father, how much more painful will it be for those who never experienced that and instead they experience the final judgment? That's the train of thought that Peter's making with these verses. Yes, it hurts, but it's better than experiencing the final judgment. And so let me just say, if you have that sin in your life, if you have that thing in your life that's just festering, rooted out, Allow the Lord to rip it out of you no matter how painful it is because it's better now than later. Amen? Amen. Sometimes God uses our suffering for our purification. And as painful as it is, it causes us to bear fruit. Sometimes God's got to prune away those dead branches so that fruit can grow, right? And it hurts, but it's good. Praise the Lord that he does that for us. All right, so we've seen in this passage that God uses suffering in three ways, for our joy, for his glory, and for our purification. So because of that, Peter says, this is what we're called to do. We're called to trust him and keep doing good. Look at verse 19. It says this, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Those who suffer according to God's will. Now, this can be a little bit counterintuitive, but I would argue that the fact that our suffering is God's will is actually the most comforting thing that we can know about our suffering. 
It can sound harsh at first. Well, why does God want us to suffer? The fact that it is sometimes his will that we suffer is actually the most comforting thing that we can imagine because it tells us that there will be an end to our suffering. It tells us that there's hope, that this is for our good. He tells, tells us that it's hope. there's hope that he will be glorified in it. It tells us that, there hope, that there's hope that we will grow because of it. If it weren't God's will, we wouldn't have any hope in our suffering. We wouldn't have any hope that it wouldn't just get worse and worse and worse. For no reason. Yeah, it's painful. But it's necessary. It's not needless. Your suffering is not needless. It is necessary. God doesn't want us to needlessly suffer for no reason. Because he loves you. What kind of dad would I have been if I saw that splinter in Owen's hand and I said, we got to just amputate the whole thing just to be safe? A bad one? I wouldn't be a dad anymore because child protective services would come and cart me away, right? God's a better father than I am. He doesn't want you to suffer needlessly. Your suffering, as painful as it can be, is for your good. And it's for a reason. And here's the kicker, church, is that we don't necessarily know what the reason is. Like, man, wouldn't that be nice? When we were suffering, God dropped like a suffering fortune cookie on our laps and we open it up and it tells us the exact reason why we're going through the trial we're going through. That'd be nice. It's not the way that it works. We don't always get to know why we're suffering. So what do we do? That's the whole point. We need to entrust our souls to a faithful creator and keep doing good. Trust God and keep doing good. Keep doing what you're called to do. That's what the early church did. Whenever the persecution came, a persecution that none of us can imagine sitting here right now, when that persecution came, what did they do? They trusted God and they kept doing good. They kept preaching the gospel. He didn't let it stop their mission. Let us not let suffering stop what we're called to do. Keep trusting God and keep doing good. Good And praise the Lord that we can know, as painful as it is, that our suffering is for our good and his glory. Amen? Let's pray.